Today on Truth of Politics and Culture, Texas takes a stand against what it sees as an unconstitutional attempt to prevent the state from defending itself from an invasion. Governor Henry McMaster in South Carolina delivers his State of the State address, and the Ohio Senate completes the override of Governor DeWine's veto for a bill that would protect minors from gender-altering surgery. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. Welcome into YouTube. Welcome into Facebook Live. Thanks for joining me today for Truth and Politics and Culture. Appreciate that very much. Hope you're having a great day so far. Hope yesterday was good to you. And uh, we're going to dive into a couple of news stories today. I'm going to have to bug out a little bit early to get to Columbia today for the legislative session. But we got a lot to cover and plenty of good stuff. So hang around. And of course, if you're listening to the podcast, thanks for doing that. Please leave me a good review. Uh, follow me, download the show, listen to it at your leisure. And uh, if you got a, if you got a minute, if you really enjoy the show, please take a minute to let folks know that you do. Um, I'm going to start out doing something a little bit different this morning. Uh, first of all, programming note, Austin Barker, my former co-host on, when I was on the radio uh, doing Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam, he's going to join me tomorrow here live in the humbly luxurious uh, dining room studio here of Truth and Politics and Culture. So um, it, I hope you'll tune in for that. A lot of people really enjoyed our back and forth, and so we're going to be able to do that tomorrow uh, for the program, and I'm excited about Austin being here. Of course, he'll start, start at 7.30, regular time. Might go a little bit longer tomorrow just because uh, usually the conversations that we get into uh, end up being extended, shall we say. So looking forward to that, looking forward to having Austin here tomorrow with me. Um, all right, let, b- before we get into uh, Texas and Governor Abbott, um, who yesterday uh, really took a stand against the federal government, against Biden's no immigration policy, he has, he's got a completely open border policy, people pouring across. According to the Washington Examiner, we're up to 10 million now illegals that have come in. Uh, under the Biden administration, uh, this this is unconscionable. It's it is uh, it's it's one of the great crises of our lives, in my opinion. I mean, I you cannot have an open border to the point that you just allow people to waltz across. I mean, we're starting to get stories of uh, things that are happening with the illegals in different part of the parts of the country, um, illegals that have criminal records. Uh, illegals involved in drunk driving incidents that are taking people's lives. I mean, on and on and on it goes. Um, and of course, the fentanyl crisis is completely out of hand. So you just, you just got a lot of bad stuff connected with illegal immigration. And it's not good for the immigrants. I mean, they're risking their lives uh, to come here and the because they believe the border is open, which it is. And and the some of the living conditions that they're having to um, endure because the cities that they're going to are not able to handle the numbers. 
we've got schools that are being converted into shelters for illegal immigrants that are not even there, so that the students can't even have access to the schools that they were, uh, uh, particularly the gym um, that that they were uh, accustomed to using. I mean, the, the the ramifications of this nationwide are just incredible, and so you you have to feel some sense of support, I think, for Governor Abbott and what he's trying to do in Texas, because if you can imagine the things that I'm talking about around the country, they're being magnified in Texas a uh, hundredfold, because all those things are happening right there on the border with a constant flow of illegals coming into his state. So we're going we're gonna to get all the way into that in a minute. But something happened to me last night when I was at the gym. Um, when I go to the gym, I try to walk on the treadmill for an hour, uh, using different, um, uh, you know, I elevate the platform a little bit. So I'm walking uphill at a certain percentage and so forth. Uh, just trying to get my exercise in trying to, uh, maintain the strength that I need just to do the things that God has called me to do. So anyway, I was there last night and, um, I, I just started, you know, it's typical, uh, of most gyms where they have these TVs lined up across the middle. So you're standing there on the treadmill or you're working. They've got all the workout, the uh, uh, aerobic type machines, I guess you could say, um, that are facing the television. they got them lined up. I don't know how many treadmills. Gosh, there's a ton. And uh, most of them were filled last night, by the way. Um, and then they have the exercise bikes. They have the elliptical trainers, all of that positioned so that you can be on there and watch any of these screens. There's probably, I don't know, 20 screens maybe lined up across the middle. And you can select which TV you want to use. Now, a lot of people don't use them anymore because they're watching their phones. I mean, I've got direct TV on my phone. So when I go to the gym, I usually just pick whatever. It's like having my television from the living room uh, there on the platform with me. So I, I, I generally use that. But last night I was I was looking up and I, I could see on one screen was CNN, one screen was Fox News, one screen was I think there was an MSNBC screen, there was a CBS News screen, uh, several other news sources, and every single story that was being discussed was negative, and I mean negative on a uh, a pretty deep level, to the point that I could kind of just, I mean, I'm looking, looking at this story, looking at that story, looking at this, and I could just kind of feel the weight of, of what's going on in the world just kind of settling down on me. And I realized that I was getting dragged down by this. And it happens to me occasionally. I mean, when I do preparation to do this show, I mean, I have to read a ton of stories. I, I have to look and check sources. I always want to try to make sure that what I'm telling you is correct. I mean, we can't have a show called Truth and Politics and Culture if um, I'm if I'm not making sure that what I'm telling you is true. So uh, you know, sometimes in the midst of doing a lot of research to get ready to do the show, the reading and so forth, uh, I start feeling that weight. But last night it was just the cumulative negative. Uh, influence of these stories. I mean, everybody was coming after somebody. They were, uh, you know, every every commentator, and I couldn't hear anything. I could just see their facial expressions. And of course, most of the TVs have closed captioning, so I could kind of uh, follow the gist of the conversation. 
But everybody was was telling us that it's over. I mean, the country's had it. We, what are we going to do? It's just a, we have no place to go. There's nothing uh, good. There, there's never any good stories out there that we can celebrate. And so I thought about this morning, uh, if I feel that way sometimes, um, there were a lot of people in the gym last night. Now, whether they were paying attention to all this like I was, I, I don't know. I doubt it. But I'm sure that you felt the same way. I mean, if, that if you follow the news, if uh, and of course you see people on their phones all the time, they're doing different things, but a lot of people are looking at news stories, news breaks. And, you know, as I did that, I, I felt like we needed encouragement. L- let me say it needed to begin with me. I needed it. I needed to take my brain and check out for a second from all the negative, the the uh, the hatred. I mean, there's 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 hatred and vitriol and and just invective and all these things going back and forth between people, and it just gets you know it gets a little weighty. So I thought if I felt that way, you've probably had some of those feelings too, being a follower of the news. And uh, so I just want to start with a passage of scripture today. I want to remind us of some important things as Christians, as believers. You know, we need to look to God. Because this year, I knew coming into 2024 that this was going to be a particularly difficult year. I knew that the um, election, the political process, is going to be difficult. Um, we've, you know, got war in the Middle East. We've got we're we're trying to stop the Houthis from uh, disrupting the shipping lanes in the Red Sea. And I'm telling you, um, if that's successful, it's going to turn a an economy that's doing pretty well right now. Still, we're still paying way too much, even though the administration and the media is trying to tell you you're not. Um, Americans are smart enough to know who, when they pay the bills how much it's costing them to live. But overall, our economy is doing better than many parts of the world. And yet, all of that is at risk with what's going on in the Middle East. And then, of course, the war in Ukraine and just the overall sense of anger and frustration that's out there. So, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to, knowing that 2024 is going to be difficult and beginning to feel some of that pressure, I, I, I turned to the Psalms. Um, and I think we need to be reminded about the nature of God, um, the fact that God loves us, uh, the fact that God has said in his word that he will never leave nor forsake us. And in difficult times, we need, as particularly believers, we need to be able to speak to people about the power of God to surround and protect and to change hearts and lives, uh, because that's our only hope. I mean, in a culture that has lost its mind, you know, we started out with postmodernism that threw objectivity out the window. We used to talk about the fact that um, you you know, postmodernism said nothing except what you believe is real. It it passed, it, it made the individual autonomous in all of their decisions. Everything that was subjective was actually considered real, while objective truth was discarded. Well, that was postmodernism. And I was listening to John Stone Street yesterday, and we're now in a period that, uh, uh, you know, he calls standpoint epistemology. And I know that sounds, uh, look, epistemology simply is the, the study or the science of how we know what we know. 
and st- from from our standpoint. So truth becomes nothing more than what we say from our perspective, our standpoint, thus standpoint epistemology. And you can't have a culture or a country that can long survive this idea that everybody can just define reality any way they want to and then go out and live in it. So as Christians, we have a responsibility to be people who are always focusing on and sharing the truth of God's Word, the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability of Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to transform us from darkness into light, because the only rescue we have for the darkness that's around us is the light of Christ. But my, my attention was drawn to Psalm 34, and I just wanted to read a section of this, Psalm 34, beginning in verse 15. It encourages me, and I hope that it'll, it'll encourage you today, when the weight of the news and the political atmosphere and just the atmosphere in, in general in the country begins to weigh on you. Uh, Psalm uh, 34, 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. It should mean something significant to you when you, in desperation, begin to feel the weight of what's going on in the world that God hears when you cry, and you should cry to him. I mean, I cry out to the Lord regularly, and I can promise you God hears your prayer. He hears your cry. Uh, verse 16 is even more encouraging. The, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So, you know, when the, when the news or something in your life or something that you're encounter, encountering, because life tends to lead to brokenheartedness from time to time, when, when you feel that your spirit is crushed or that your heart's been broken or you feel that weight of everything that's going on, the Bible says the Lord is near to you at that moment. He's close to you, and that's why it's even more important to cry out to him at that point. Um, Verse 19, many of the, are the afflictions of the righteous. I know I could get an amen on that. Many of their afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Talking about, I mean, talking about us as people who honor and serve and praise the Lord and believe in, in God, God looks after us in a way that's tangible. Um Verse 21 says, Affliction may slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now let me say that again. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now I know this is more like a sermon today, and I am a preacher, but it's just every now and then we need to take a deep breath We need to be sure if we're going to consume the news, if we're going to wade in to the cesspool that has become the culture that we live in. And I mean, I'm I'm trying to be, (laughs) I know that's probably not encouraging to you for me to use that kind of language in in terms of describing the world we live in, but we have to be honest about it. See, this is the thing. You can't go stick your head in the sand and say this stuff is not happening. As a believer, we are called to be salt and light. We're called to 
to uh, or, or because we are salt and light. And the question is, will we spread the salt, shake the salt, and shine the light? Will we or will we hide? And we don't have that as an option as a believer. So we need to be encouraged as we step into the culture. And we need to share the truth. We need to share an optimistic view of the world because of the promises of God that God is not going to allow the righteous to be condemned and that all things one day will be made right, even though now they seem to be very, very wrong. And so in any event, I just, I just wanted to encourage you um, with that today. I, I, think we, I think we all need encouragement. I know I do. Uh, from time to time. All right, Texas takes a stand. To proper, now, to properly understand <clears throat> what appears to be a constitutional standoff in Texas, and, and that's really what we have here, you have to understand what the recent Supreme Court ruling related to the razor wire that Governor Abbott in, instructed the Texas National Guard to install over a 30-mile stretch of the border at Eagle Pass. Now, that's what's at issue. Uh, there are a lot of other things at issue. Governor Abbott has had it. With the Biden administration, a lot of a lot of governors, mayors, Democrat mayors, have had it with the Biden administration because they have no immigration policy. It's it's wide open borders, and the president even acknowledged that last week or earlier this week, I should say. And yet he said, "Just give me the money, give me more resources," as if the federal government doesn't spend. I mean, doesn't have resources. I mean, we. If, if the Biden administration doesn't mind spending us into almost irredeemable debt for every other possible thing, including electric cars and windmills and all those things, don't tell me that we don't have the money to enforce the law at the border the, or the resources to do it. And so it, it, this, with a wide open border like this and the consequences that are occurring in Texas because of that, I, I think Governor Abbott is exactly right to say if the federal government is not going to fulfill its responsibilities, then the state of Texas has a constitutional right to defend itself. Um, anyway, Supreme here. Let me, let me get back to what the Supreme Court actually said about the razor wire because there's some, some. I think there's some um, misunderstanding about that. Uh, the court ruled that the border patrol could cut down areas of the razor wire that, according to the Biden administration, is preventing them from doing their job. Now. Right now, under the under President Biden, their job is to escort illegal immigrants into the country and then release them. I mean, that's basically what's happening: catch and release. I mean, they're just here. Here come these illegal immigrants. Uh, they're um, some level of processing, and then they're just released into the into the country. And then they're. I mean, you're talking about 10 million people that have to find a, a, their way, find a place. Uh, it's bad for them. It's bad for the country. It's bad all the way around. It's a terrible policy. Uh, now, this isn't the Border Patrol's fault. Border Patrol agents are patriots. They're trying to do their job, working for an administration with an open-door policy. It's a no-win situation for them. So the case to decide whether or not Texas can take actions like putting up barriers to defend its border is still working its way through the court system. This was just a this was a, a court had ruled that while this question is being decided by the courts, how far Texas can go in protecting its own border when the federal government is not doing it, how far can Texas go in the interim before the court makes this decision? And a lower court had ruled that Texas could put up the razor wire 
Well, the Supreme Court stepped in and said, no, while this case is being adjudicated, you're going to have to allow, the Border Patrol is going to be able to, to cut the razor wire, wire to be able to do their job. So on Wednesday, Texas Governor Abbott put out a statement saying Texas will continue to protect the border. And the statement that he put out is pretty amazing. When you, If you read the whole thing, now I don't have time to get in the whole thing here this morning, but it emphasizes the main points of the state's legal arguments against the federal government. Abbott said, quote, President Biden has violated his oath by not only ignoring federal immigration laws, but actively working to stop states from enforcing them. He went on to say, Biden has endangered immigrants' lives by removing border barriers that would have acted as immigration funnels. So instead of migrants routing toward legal points of entry, they're trying to cross in more dangerous areas, such as swimming the Rio Grande. And then Abbott declared the state of Texas is being invaded, that they're suffering an, an actual invasion, and therefore it has a constitutional right to defend, to, to, to defend itself. He also, in the, in the process of, of, of talking about all this, he, he quoted the founding fathers, quote, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and the other visionaries who wrote the United States Constitution foresaw that states should not be left to the mercy of a lawless president who does nothing to stop external threats like cartels smuggling millions of illegal aliens across the border. Now, at a press conference uh, yesterday, the, the administration hasn't said a whole lot about this. The Biden administration is getting a lot of pressure put on it uh, to, to uh, send the Army in to stop the National Guard from putting up the razor wire. And this is not the first time this happened. This has happened. I'm going to go over three times in history quickly, but we need a little bit of historical context for this, of when the the states have had have tried to nullify federal law for some reason. That and and we'll we'll see the three times historically that that's happened. Uh, but at the press conference yesterday, you had John Kirby, who's the national security spokesperson, talking about this legal battle. And I want you to hear what he had to say about the razor wire. Does razor wire work for what? Does it work for the Border Patrol to allow them to have the access they need to be able to, uh, to better process people that are uh, trying to get across the border? I don't think so. And that's why we asked for it to be removed. Okay, L- listen to what he, he's talking about, the razor wire being removed so that people coming across the border can be processed. There's no content. There's no conversation there about the stopping people from illegally coming across the border. I mean, he pretty much just admitted that the razor wire is preventing the Biden administration from bringing all these people into the country, which is what they want. They're being processed, but they're being processed and released into the interior of the country. It is an open border policy. No matter how you want to frame it or how you want to spin it, that's what it is. The numbers don't lie. And so it, it, it's, just, it's fascinating to me that the defense for the razor wire is, oh, well, it keeps the uh, Border Patrol from doing their job of being able to go over and escort the illegals across the border and get them released into the interior of the country. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. He didn't say that. I said that. But that's my interpretation of what he's saying. Um, now, notably, when you think about James Madison, he contended that federal court— and by the way, James Madison's the author of the Constitution. He pretty much wrote it, okay? He contended that the federal courts may exercise dangerous powers beyond the grant of the Constitution. 
And when that happens, that state's authority to resist constitutional violations by the federal government must extend to violations by the judiciary, judiciary rather, as well as the executive or legislative branches. I'll put that in there. Thus, in Madison's view, state governments have the right to resist judicial decisions by federal courts, including the Supreme Court, when federal courts act beyond the scope of authority granted to them under the Constitution. And so, you know, you can agree or disagree with that. I mean, that this is, like I said, this has come up before and always before nullification or a state nullifying a federal law or defying a federal law, federal law the, the state has lost. According to the National Constitution Center, we, we have three examples. In 1798, Congress passed and President John Adams signed into law the Alien and Sedition Acts. Now, the Alien Act empowered the president to deport aliens he deemed a threat to national security, and the Sedition Act criminalized false, scandalous, and malicious speech critical of the federal government. That made Thomas Jefferson blow his stack. He was Adams' vice president. He was also John Adams' political rival. So he responded by anonymously drafting a series of resolutions for, uh, for the Kentucky State Legislature. The Kentucky Resolutions passed in 1798, and it declared the Alien and Sedition Acts unconstitutional and altogether void and of no force in the state of, of Kentucky. Now, this never really made it to the court system because the way that this got resolved is that Jefferson ran against Adams, and he was elected to the presidency. He defeated Adams in 1800, and he allowed the Alien and Sedition Acts to expire in 1801. So that's how that got resolved. So you could, you could chalk that up as a win for Jefferson without even having to go through the court system. Three decades later, um, yeah, three de- in 1832, another vice president drew on uh, Jefferson's Kentucky resolutions to mount a challenge to federal supremacy, the nullification crisis, this was under Andrew Jackson, it's, it, it came about in November of 1832 when the South Carolina legislature, here we are in South Carolina, passing an ordinance of nullification declaring two federal tariffs, the tariff of 1828, known by Southerners as the tariff of abominations, and the tariff of 1832, null, void, and no law because they disproportionately burden the Southern states. So you had Vice President John C. Calhoun. He followed Jefferson's arguments, saying that the states could veto federal acts they judged to exceed the federal government's limited powers because the Constitution was a compact among the sovereign states. Um, Jackson forcefully denounced the theory of nullification in a proclamation to the people of South Carolina issued in December of 1832. Jackson pointed to the Supremacy Clause, and he declared nullification incompatible with the existence of the Union, contradicted expressly by the letter of the Constitution, unauthorized by its spirit, inconsistent with every principle on which it was founded, and destructive of the great object for which it was formed. Jackson threatened to use force against South Carolina if it refused to comply with federal law. And he asked the question, disunion by armed force is treason. Are you really ready to incur its guilt? Now, of course, what? That was in... Uh, 19, of 1832, so by 1860, obviously, South Carolina and the Confederacy was willing to go to war over whether or not 
the federal government could enforce its laws. Congress backed Jackson by offering South Carolina a compromise. In early 1833, it passed a force bill authorizing Jackson to deploy federal troops to South Carolina, as well as a new tariff law, the Compromise Tariff, designed to ease the tax burden. South Carolina repealed its ordinance, and that ended the crisis. And then the third nullification attempt came out of resistance, and, and a lot of you remember this, from the Arkansas state government to judicially mandated school integration. That was in 1954. In 54, you had Brown versus the Board of Education. The Supreme Court unanimously held school segregation unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th um, Amendment. And then a year later, Brown versus Board of Education II, it ordered the schools across the nation to integrate, quote, with all deliberate speed. And yet hostility to integration was deep-seated. And so there were a lot of white schools several years later that had failed to integrate. Resistance was especially fierce in Arkansas. So in November of 1956, Arkansas amended their constitution to instruct the state legislature to, quote, oppose in every constitutional manner the unconstitutional desegregation decisions, end quote. So a crisis ensued when in September 1957, Governor Orville Fabus uh, deployed the Arkansas National Guard to prevent nine black high school students from attending Little Rock Central High School the students were able to attend only after President Eisenhower sent in the U.S. Army to enforce integration. Um, and that provided the backdrop for the case, uh, Cooper versus Aaron, in 1958. Although Eisenhower's deployment of the military had ended the immediate crisis, the prospect of a smooth, peaceful integration for students beyond the Little Rock Nine looked bleak. So as a result, the Little Rock School District sought to buy time um, and then the school district asked the Supreme Court to let it postpone its integration plan for an additional two and a half years. If Jackson's nullification proclamation is the definitive presidential statement, um, according to the National Constitution Center, then denying the school district's request for post postpone, postponement, rather, the court ruled that the students' constitutional rights could not be sacrificed or yielded to, the, to violence and disorder. So, Cooper was the definitive judicial statement, just like Jackson was the uh, definitive presidential statement about nullification. Uh, the students, the court said in a unanimous decision, neither um, that, um, let's see, that these laws couldn't be nullified openly and directly by state legislatures or state executive or judicial officers or nullified indirectly by them through evasive schemes for segregation, whether attempted ingeniously uh, or not. That, again, this is all coming from the National uh, Constitution Center. So, so as you look back through history, we, we see there have been times when states have, you know, kind of put their back up and said, look, we're, we've got to enforce our laws over the federal government's laws. Uh, now the question becomes, with Texas— is the Biden, what is the Biden administration willing to do? How far are they willing to go? So far, they've demonstrated they're willing to go to court. They're willing to fight reasonable um, measures to cut down on the amount of illegal immigrants coming across the border. And so not only is the Biden administration pursuing policies of an open border, 
They're also fighting people who are trying, like the state of Texas, who are trying to do something about it when the federal government refuses. And so this is, it'll come down to what the Biden administration is willing to do and how far Governor Abbott is willing to go uh, to say, to enforce the law in Texas and to protect the Texas border. This is going to be interesting to follow. I, I, it, it really is. All right, quickly, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about uh, Governor McMaster. Uh, he gave his State of the Union, uh, excuse me, State of the State address last night, and um, I was I was listening and watching some of it uh, while I was at the gym. Uh, once I got through looking at the screens, all the stories, but um, I, I found it interesting this morning. I could not find anything in the Greenville News or the state newspaper. That's in Columbia, at least the print edition about Governor McMaster's speech. I mean, I, I flipped through the pages electronically. I get the state and the Greenville News and the Charleston Post and Courier digitally. And the only one that covered it and, and put it on the, the, the front page was the Charleston Post and Courier. Um, Governor McMaster last night talked about a booming econ economy, record-breaking budget surpluses, a nation-leading advanced manufacturing industry headlined by the state's burgeoning electric vehicle and lithium battery sector. Um, a lot of people, including the uh, Freedom Caucus. In fact, Adam Morgan kind of gave a response to the governor's uh, speech last night representing the Freedom Caucus, and he, he was critical of Governor McMaster because of the emphasis that he put on the electric battery manufacturer, that that was... Um, a woke sector of the economy, and that there shouldn't be a whole lot of emphasis on that. Anyway, uh, Representative Morgan is going to join me on the program on Monday morning. We didn't really have time to flesh it out today, so he's going to come on Monday, and we're going to talk about a lot of things, but we're going to talk about his response to Governor McMaster's speech on Monday. Um, so Governor McMaster, McMaster said basically uh, that the state of the state is strong. And then he went after the labor unions, which um, I applaud him for doing that. I mean, I, he, he, he went against organized labor, and, and the reason he talked about it is because there's an ongoing battle in the U.S. Supreme Court between South Carolina Ports Authority and the National Labor Relations Board over, over a secondary boycott by the International Longshoremen's Association of the state's Hugh K. Leatherman Senior Terminal in Charleston. McMaster, and this is coming from the Post and Courier, McMaster, who leads the state with the nation's lowest percentage, by the way, of unionized, unionized workers, said in his speech, the state's economy faces a clear and present danger from big labor unions, which are accused of crippling and distorting the progress and prosperity of industries in cities and other states. And they now have made the southeastern U.S. a region that is long proven impervious to organized labor their next target, with labor movements taking root in every industry from service and hospitality to automotive. Now, so McMaster said, quote, no one should bargain their prosperity under threats of union boycotts or, or coercive pressure campaigns. And he went on to say, we will not let our state's economy suffer or become collateral damage as labor unions seek to consume new jobs and conscript uh, new dues-paying members. And we will not allow the Biden administration's pro-union policies to chip away at South Carolina's sovereign interest. We will fight all the way to the gates of hell, he said, and we will win. 
Um, some of the Democrats, Representative Wendell Gilliard in particular, um, he, they were not happy. Um, he said that McMaster's comments was political pandering that was designed to sway the courts. And he said, quote, when you look at these hardworking men in the state of um, uh, in South Carolina and the taxes they pay, working 12, 16 hours a day, uh, that was an insult, Gilliard told the Post and Courier. The governor needs to apologize to all union members in the state of South Carolina. Uh, no, it's not going to happen. Um, it's it, the, the unions are trying to get into places like South Carolina, where I would argue that those who are in the workforce are much better off without um, the unions. And so McMaster has promised to continue to fight that. All right, a couple of other things. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, the governor asked to approve hundreds of thousands of dollars to combat animal fighting in South Carolina, millions to combat contraband cell phones in the state's corrections facilities, and for the consolidation of South Carolina's health and human services delivery system into one cabinet-level agency. Now, that's been something that has been talked about a long time. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's going to get anywhere, but the governor said, I implore you, let this legislative session be remembered for the creation of the most effective, efficient, professional health and human service delivery system in our history. Um, he also asked lawmakers to give the executive branch greater oversight on the state's ju judicial selection process. Now, this is we're talking about judicial reform in South Carolina. You know, yesterday, I talked to Representative McCravey on this show about um, James Smith, who's going to be uh, appointed likely to the Fifth Circuit Court in South Carolina, who is philosophically, his, and if you look at his history, he is philosophically opposed to many laws that have passed in South Carolina. Um, and he's, he's, a, he's, he's a dedicated liberal. And uh, if how conservatives on February 7th, by the way, is when this vote's going to come down, and we're going to talk some more about this as, it, as we get closer to the vote. But how can they vote for him uh, to sit on the Fifth Circuit? Because it's not just about the Fifth Circuit. Once you begin to work your way up as a judge through the court system, I mean, you could land eventually on the, on the South Carolina Supreme Court. Uh, this is, and, and it, it doesn't make any sense to me, as I said yesterday, to have all these conservative majorities in South Carolina, the House, the Senate, the governor, the executive, all the executive offices. And, and we end up, we, you can't tell me that we don't have philosophically conservative people, judges, that we can put on the courts that will, will interpret the Constitution and the laws that we pass according to the laws themselves and not according to some type of philosophical left-wing ideology. Um, I, I think that's, a, I mean, obviously a serious problem. So he asked for um, greater oversight of the executive branch for judicial reform, and there's a lot of different ways that can happen. Uh, the Judicial Merit Selection Committee, one of the things that the Attorney General suggested is that the governor get to appoint the members of, the, of that committee so that you can at least have in a state, you can have the the state could hold the governor responsible. There would be a, a point of, of accountability if the Judicial Merit Selection Committee were to continue were to give uh, judges to the legislature. But it ends up with the Supreme Court. They give them three, and you have to pick one uh, that are are not philosophically conservative. So 
Uh, he asked for a billion dollars, excuse me, half billion, <laughs> 500 million, and one-time funding to repair the state's bridges. That's an appropriation Senate Finance Committee, something uh, the chairman, Harvey Peeler, explicitly told reporters in an earlier legislative briefing was likely to face opposition. Uh, uh, chairman, Finance Committee Chairman Peeler said putting that much money into DOT to fix the bridges all at once, we're going to have to talk about that one, he told reporters, which means it's not going to go anywhere um, right now. Uh, let's see if there's anything. No, there's not really anything else coming out of that uh, to talk about right now. As I said, we're going to have Representative Alan Morgan, uh, excuse me, Adam Morgan, on on Monday uh, to talk about some of the concerns he had with the speech related to uh, the talk about EVs, electric vehicles, and so forth. Uh, all right, one more piece of news, good news uh, to share with you today. Uh, this is what it sounded like yesterday in Ohio when the Ohio legislature, the Senate, overrode the veto by Governor DeWine of a law that would protect minors from having gender-altering surgery. With 23 yeas and 9 nays, the bill, having received the required constitutional majority, passes withstanding the objections of the governor. Message from the House. Okay, so it's already been overridden uh, in uh, Ohio by the House. So here's the story from Daily Signal. Ohio Senate voted to override Governor Mike DeWine's veto of House Bill 68 that will protect minors from experimental transgender treatments, a few, a few some, euphemistically, I'm sorry, <laughs> referred to as gender-affirming care and safeguard fairness in women's sports. The override passed the Senate 24 to 8 on Wednesday after passing the House of Representatives 65 to 28 on January 10th. And so this is... I mean, th this is good news for, for the people of Ohio, that they're going to be able to, to protect minors. We've got the same bill, uh, or a bill similar, not the same, here in South Carolina that has been has passed in the House and hopefully is going to get passed over to, well, it's, it, it's already passed over the Senate so it, because it's passed the House, and hopefully it's going to make it to, uh, through the Senate and I, I have no doubt that Governor McMaster will sign that bill once, if it makes it to his desk. So you need to let your senators know if you're in favor of protecting minors in South Carolina from um, surgery that would, I mean, essentially it's, it, it just it's a, it, it, it mutilates them physically. Uh, it's, it's an irreversible process, essentially. I mean, it... There, you can try to reverse the surgery, but I, it, it's a terrible process. And for minors to be, this is something that we should all agree that we need to protect minors from, as, as well as puberty blockers that we, we don't know what the long-term effects of puberty blockers will be, um, and cro across hormone treatments as well. All right, that's, that's all the time. Oh, what I was going to say is contact your senator and let them know that you want them to vote for this bill, if you do. If you agree with me and believe that this is important, um, don't you know? go to sc.statehouse.gov. If you don't know who your senator is, right there on the homepage, you can put in the information that will tell you who your uh, state senator is. Contact them and let them know that you would like to see this bill passed into law. All right, that's all the time we're going to have for today. But let me tell you, tomorrow you don't want to miss the program because, once again, Austin Barker is going to join me live here in uh, the dining room. And so 
I hope that uh, you'll tune in at 7.30 on YouTube or Facebook and that you'll be sure and download the podcast. Today's podcast will be up shortly, so please take advantage of that. And if you listen to it, don't forget to leave me a good review if you enjoy the program. God bless you. Have a good day.